And it's a test tube Thursday, this time with science Sam Yamin, who is a neuroscientist and science communicator. Nice to have you. Good morning. Happy Thursday. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. I've often heard that smell is one of those things that can provoke a memory very, very intensely. But what's our story today about memory and smell? Smell is such an interesting uh, sense in the brain, and it's deeply connected to memories. And not too long ago, about last year, researchers found that if you did this intense uh, regimen where you had people with dementia and memory loss smell all of these essential oils in a specific way, it could improve uh, their memory slightly. So these researchers more recently thought, well, would this work for anyone who's aging and maybe starting to experience some kind of memory loss and decline? just with age, that naturally happens. And so they had people smell essential oils, one different one a night. It's such a cute study. I really like it. They had people right before bed, use a diffuser and have all these different essential oils for about two hours while falling asleep. They took some people, older adults, age 60 to 85, and had them undergo this smell regimen. And others would just put the diffuser with basically no smell. And after six months of doing this every single night, seven different odors a week, they had essential oils like rose, orange, eucalyptus, lemon, peppermint, rosemary and lavender, very important study detail. Um, They found after six months, people who had these essential oil smells, these nice, pleasant smells while falling asleep every night, had slight improvements on a specific type of verbal learning test. It's a test that gives you a bunch of words, 15 different words in a list, and then you have to recall them after some series of of time passing and different distractors happening. And they found the people who had been smelling things before falling asleep every night did a little bit better on this test than people who didn't have those smells in that age group. And they also saw a part of the brain that's in it's the white matter tracks that are somewhat involved in memory. It's not super, you know, it's not like a smoking gun here, but they found differences in those parts of the brain as well for the people who underwent the smell. And so they're thinking maybe this is a simple thing that we could do that would also be pleasant, pretty low risk having in a, a lot of people have these already that could help slow down or help improve some aspects of memory uh, in older adults. Well, maybe I'll change my mind when I get closer to that eventuality, but I also think falling asleep while smelling roses would drive me nuts. <laughs> maybe you could have the lavender or eucalyptus scent instead. Okay. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it has to be, I think the different scents is important. It's, it's like this environmental enrichment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we could, we could see if we could exclude the rose for you, John. Okay. Uh, how one walks, and you can learn a lot from how people walk, uh, apparently could shape the future of biometrics. Tell me about that. Yeah, there are researchers in the University of New Brunswick who are wondering, you know, we use our fingerprint, our our thumbprint to open up our phone or to open up our laptops or face ID, all these different ways to basically bypass passwords and not have to fumble around for ID, whether you're at the airport, you're logging into your work computer or just logging into your personal phone. Uh, Those things work pretty well. They're definitely better than having to remember 100 different passwords. And as you know, we start to worry more about cybersecurity. That's pretty cool. But these researchers are wondering, could we use the way you walk 
as a way to identify you, as a way to know that this thing belongs to you or you are you. And so they're doing this analysis. Now they're doing this on campus with people who have consented to be a part of this study. It's the first thing to say, where they have basically these tiles that can sense pressure. Uh, and from that, they're studying the way people walk. So they're getting these imprints of people's feet as they walk, these pressure detections. And they're using that to try to understand the differences in our gait. Gait is just how we walk. Um, and they're trying to see if we can use you know, machine learning to then automate recognition of people based on the way that they walk. Now, you can imagine this having security implications. So, for example, imagine going to the airport and you don't have to show your passport and wait in this long line. You could just keep walking, no stopping. And that's how they know that it's you and confirm you. That could be cool. Uh, and they also think they could use it to track different elements of health and how they might change depending on our walk. Very early stuff. Could be cool. Could be something concerning, but definitely something to think about. I have this very strange mental image of a bunch of people at the counter at Tim Hortons and being compelled <laughs> to walk around the room so that they can pay for their coffee. Yeah, you can see it going wrong, and then you're just like walking forever like a sim. <laughs> okay, so tell me about this uh, revolutionary superconductor, and apparently some people are somewhat uh, skeptical about it. Oh, yes. Big, big news over the last few weeks in the science community um, about superconductors. Now, first, let me just say what a superconductor is. It's in the name. It conducts electricity super, super well with basically no loss of energy, which we have in a lot of the different cables we use to conduct electricity today. There's some energy loss. It's inefficient. Superconductors have no loss of energy, and they also um, allow us to create magnetic fields. So they're used not only for efficient energy, but you could make smaller and cheaper MRIs. You could have these magnetic levitating trains, which are really cool, very futuristic, very important for computing. Um, so they're very relevant to everyday lives. Would allow, if you could have an amazing superconductor that's really easy to use, it could revolutionize a lot of things. Here's the caveat. We've had them since 1911, but they only operate at very, very low temperatures. We're talking like negative 273 degrees, okay? Mm. Very, very cold, much colder than a Canadian winter. Now, there's this, every few years, someone comes up with this um, potential new set of materials you could use to make a superconductor that would work at regular pressure and room temperature. That would be the game changer. Right now for MRIs, you have to use liquid helium to keep the certain parts cool enough. Uh, it makes it really inefficient, makes it hard to do those in remote areas uh, and makes MRIs not very portable. Uh, but there was this, there were these people in South Korea who are saying they have a new substance where it's a superconductor at room temperature. The problem is people haven't been able to replicate it. They just published it open access online in a preprint, not yet pre-reviewed at the end of July. So it hasn't been that long, um, but so far researchers around the world are trying to replicate it and can't quite get there. Uh, this happens every so often. So scientists are used to being skeptical. This is the scientific method in action though. Someone does something, reports it, it's exciting. People try to replicate it. In this case, they haven't done it yet. We're hopeful but they haven't done it yet. So that's what a lot of the commotion is. It's just like, can we replicate this? Because it'd be huge if it's true. Okay. And one last story. Is there rocket exhaust on the moon? <laughs> yeah. So 
Now we're entering a time where we are going back to the moon for the first time in over 50 years with the Artemis missions. We haven't been back in the moon since Apollo missions over 50 years ago. It is very exciting. But now that we're going back to the moon, we're going to be using these big landers. They have lots of, through till 2029, lots of exciting landings that um, they're planning. And Canadians are a part of this, Jeremy Hansen in particular. Um, but having these massive landers on the moon will kick up a lot of moon dust. On Earth, dust is annoying. In space, it's insidious. It's dangerous. It's like tiny shards of glass. And in the Apollo missions, um, when astronauts were entering and exiting the lunar module, dust got everywhere. It clogged things. It interfered with instruments. It even degraded their spacesuits. And it's a hazard to health. So researchers are wondering, is this going to be an even bigger problem now that we're having bigger landers going to the moon more frequently? Uh, and we're going to be going up and down from the moon and launching Gateway, which, which will be rotating around them, uh, orbiting around the moon, just like the ISS revolves around um, the Earth, and they're wondering if this moon dust is going to be a major challenge for astronauts in the Artemis missions. Of course, this is being looked into. This is something NASA and partners are aware of. Um, these new folks found, maybe not if you're orbiting far from the moon, but close to the surface of the moon, it could be a serious issue. And they're trying to model that and understand what we can do about it and where things would need to orbit around the moon um, if we're having a longstanding presence on the moon to avoid the dust being an issue. All right. And where can people find out more about you? You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, uh, threads, even Twitter. I'm science.sam. Thanks a lot. Good to have you, Sam. Thanks That's so much. Sam Yamin, who is this week's scientist for Test Tube Thursday.